Welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. Mooney, I can't believe it's time for our end of the year show. It sounds like a cliche, but this year is like, it's almost over. 25 episodes from Guyana to cybersecurity, from Turkey to India. There have been shows on protests in Hong Kong's elections in Argentina, the future of Merkel, what's up in Bolsonaro's Brazil. Man, it's been a turbulent, turbulent year. Absolutely. And I was looking at the episode from last year where we had Richard Haas on our end of the year show, and he talked about the Oxford word of the year, which was toxic. That could be a a word this year as well. And we had asked Richard then to look into his crystal ball and share some predictions for 2019. And his predictions included things like the end of multilateralism, a recession in democracy, interesting phrase, a divided Europe, and a slow motion crisis of climate change, among others. And he was dead right on most of them. But maybe Certainly, Richard's definition of climate change was off because guess what? This year's Oxford word or phrase of the year is climate emergency. So it doesn't really indicate a slow motion at all. Okay, so for for today's show, we have David Rothkopf joining us to talk about 2020 predictions. David is a prolific author and journalist who's written extensively on international affairs. And he's going to bring his own crystal ball here to Altamar. But first, Peter, let's tell our listeners and confess our own list of trends, which we finally narrowed down to five after some of the usual heated discussion. So there was one that we really agreed on right away, which was citizen unrest. We had different ways of describing it, but I think definitely citizen unrest was the, was the general theme. And it seems like the entire world has taken to the streets, creating a global political disruption that really reflects an enormous discontent with governments from all ends of the political spectrums. There's been protests in countries where the right governs or the left or anything in between. And there doesn't really seem to be a single reason, single specific demand, other than demands for democracy in Hong Kong, for more responsive government and less corruption in many of those in Latin America. But it does, if we're looking for a common sense of, uh, of unease, inequality, stagnant middle-class income, f- poor services, and a perception that the system is really rigged for a select wealthy few in the establishment is the common denominator for all of the uprisings. So these really don't seem to be ending as the year comes to a close. Mooney and I, uh, you know, have batted this around and we have a number two on our list of 2020 trends is the steady decline of the West and the West's institutions, the West's security, the West's cultural icons. And you know, we recently witnessed a wounded NATO meeting, but that's only, it's really only the beginning. I mean, the world is seeing the waning power of Angela Merkel, the lack of a clear successor at Europe's helm, the fractures in the transatlantic alliance, the reorganization. You know, it seems like in, or I would even say the disorganization of the global framework that was designed by the Western powers post World War II. And in 2020, we'll see China continuing to move successfully forward, gaining international economic and political clout along the way. And and look, you can see it everywhere. Look at the snake charming that China recently did uh, with the rabidly anti-Chinese president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. And Russia also seems to be gaining geopolitical advantage everywhere in the Middle East and Central Asia. Russia seems to be gaining a really outsized political role 
as U.S. and foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy and U.S. security policy seems to be in retreat. And, you know, the one other thing I'd add, Munia, is it's not only about China and Russia, even middle powers like, I don't know, for example, Turkey are also expanding their regional influence pretty much to the detriment of the West. We agree on that one. And I think on the third trend of the year, of course, which is climate emergency, the word referenced by Oxford Dictionary, and it has been a year of actual fires, deadly droughts, floods, receding coastlines, heat waves in Greenland, very unusual climate behavior. And a recent study, or many recent studies warn us that it is way past the time to stop talking and start taking drastic measures. It's kind of getting irreversible right now and changes in energy production, agricultural industrial practices, and human lifestyles especially will be the only way to avoid greater risk and catastrophe. And Peter, remember we did a whole episode on the fight for the Arctic and how all the heating up is um, of the new uh, sea routes through the Arctic is due to the fact that the actual ice is melting and making it increasingly navigable and approachable. So I know this fourth trend was yours, Mooney, and I'm, 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 I get to read it because I thought it was such an intelligent addition, which is, I think the fourth trend is really the end of privacy. And, 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 you know, maybe we should rephrase that to mean a newfound concern with privacy. And, and when you've seen, you know, when we were talking about this, you, you referenced to me the latest Apple advertising for iPhone 11. And it's all about how Apple invests in privacy and how you can rest easy if you have an iPhone 11. And they've certainly done opinion research and you can see how tech companies flip from the being the cool heroes to the privacy villains in the eyes of the public. And, and we've seen, you know, manipulated elections, hacks, leaks, cyber threats to businesses, to health, to national security, and growing, growing public paranoia on this. And we're going to see governments scramble over the next few years. And we're going to see the first part of this really happening in 2020 to create laws and safeguards to safeguard our own personal financial information to safeguard our privacy and you know to safeguard the political debate that is increasingly vulnerable everywhere so true and so to cap our trends trend number five then we did agree on this one is the new face of trade and as the world becomes more divided and countries are increasingly ruled by enemies of globalization the goal is no longer more and more trade but how to regulate trade flows and increasingly and i think that's very disappointing. Countries are turning to the old school solution of tariffs. So it's like tariffs here and there as political tools, as trade tools. And during the past 40 years, international organizations, trading blocks, countries, globalists have made tremendous strides in opening the worldwide flow of goods and services to a lot of people's benefit. So it's very sad that trade has become so political and tariffs are the weapon of choice to punish partners or reward others. And so we see the news from cheese to trucks, from steel to motorcycles, slapping restrictions to imports, mostly as an effort of political control, and unfortunately is on the daily news. And we stand to lose as consumers, and it really doesn't look like it's going to abate one bit. Well, Mooney, there are other trends we discussed, like the rebirth of women's rights movement and, you know, and the movement behind it, the increasing role of China and Latin America. And stay tuned for that, because we're going to do an episode on this and the role of artificial intelligence. But for today, we want to focus on our five and ask our guest if he's got additional ones. And joining us is David Rothkopf, author, prolific writer, global advisor 
advisor, visiting professor at Columbia University's School of Public Affairs, former Clinton administration undersecretary of commerce for international trade policy, the former CEO and editor-in-chief of foreign policy. He's also a fellow podcaster who hosts the Deep State podcast. His long career and active engagement in global affairs makes him the perfect guest for today's predictive show. Welcome, David, to Altamar. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. So, David Mooney and I came up with the list of five trends for 2020, and they are, you know, citizen unrest, the ongoing decline of the West to Russia and China principally, but also to some middle powers, climate vulnerability, the end of privacy, and the new face of trade. I guess I wanted to ask you, which of these or which one of these do you think is the most important one? And would they be your five? Well, you know, I think we tend to get a little caught up in headlines. And that leads us to focus on issues of the moment or issues of personality or issues of, of politics and not the bigger long-term trends. I think if people look back 50 years from now, 100 years from now, um, the climate crisis is going to loom larger than anything else. Uh, the, the damage that is being done, um, uh, in some cases irreversibly to the planet, um, is going to have consequences that extend as far as we can see uh, and result in tens of thousands of lost lives, hundreds of millions of people dislocated, uh, tens of billions, hundreds of, of billions of dollars in costs. Um, and, and, you know, some of the world's leading countries uh, are doing very little about it. In fact, the United States has taken some major steps backwards on these issues, uh, particularly in the past year. Uh, and the global consensus uh, that seemed to be emerging on this uh, is faltering because the U.S. position and, and some retrograde actions by the Chinese, um, the Indians, and others. And so, you know, I think that's going to historically look very large. Um, I think there are big technological trends afoot um, uh, that have to do with knitting together the planet, the rise of artificial intelligence, the, uh, the rise of, of sort of the big data economy where a lot of the wealth and value of what's exchanged in the world uh, is 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 measured in bits and bytes and hard for accountants to currently assess right now, um, uh, and and a host of other changes, which our leaders are underschooled or unschooled in, and thus, you know, it, if you were to get together a group of people in the United States Congress who understood artificial intelligence well enough to make a policy about it. You could probably do it in a phone booth if we still had phone booths. Uh, and, and I think that's a giant risk to policymakers around the world. Um, and then, you know, I mean, I think some of these other trends that you talk about, uh, political trends around the world, um, are, are important. And I think the one that I would flag finally is the biggest among these uh, is, is essentially the retreat of, of, of liberalism, the sense that, you know, that we momentarily had in a moment of uh, uh, euphoria in the early 90s that we'd reached the end of history, we figured it out, uh, free markets and democracy were the answer. Um, well, that seems to have been uh, prematurely celebrated. And, and I think 
Uh, democracy is in trouble. It's in trouble in the United States. Uh, it's never really gotten a foothold in China, and it's being further suppressed there. It's in trouble in the world's largest democracy in India. Uh, it's in trouble in Europe, where uh, the Russians and the far right and ethno-nationalists are actively working uh, against uh, shared institutions and democratic processes and undermining those processes. Um, and frankly, I think that the the free market side of the thing has gone to the point where, you know, there was a study that just came out this week that in the United States since the 1970s, um, the top 1% of the population has seen their um, wealth and income increase 100 times faster than that of the bottom 50% of the population. The top 0.01% of the U.S. population has wealth equivalent to that of the bottom 90% of the U.S. population. So democracy is being quashed, but but free markets have gotten out of hand and inequality is growing at a record pace. We're going to get to that when we talk about citizen unrest, but I wanted to, to break all these things down because I think you did a great job of like of introducing all of these things. But let, let me let me begin where you began, which is on 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 the climate emergency. And I use climate emergency very specifically because it's the Oxford phrase, Oxford Dictionary's phrase of the year uh, for 2019. And so you know, you you spoke about this as uh, almost like it, this is this is the major crisis, but it seems to be a task so daunting that we can't get it fixed. I mean, what what do you think needs to change? Uh, I mean, you you mentioned U.S. leadership, but what do you think needs to change in order to have the international community really face climate change in ways that will allow our sons and daughters and great sons and daughters to have a world which uh, they will inherit, which is not rife with problems? Well, I mean, that's obviously um, a massive question and it requires a lot of change at a lot of levels. On one level, I think we have to move on from our traditional definitions of what a community is, which was defined by geographic proximity and recognize the reality of a global community where our fates are intertwined, I th which is a big philosophical leap. I think we, we need to make uh, some some fundamental structural changes in our society that take the power away from those who would despoil the environment in order to profit in the short term and gives it back to the people who are going to have to live in that environment. Um, uh, notably, uh, the, the, both the, those who are disenfranchised economically and those who are disenfranchised because they haven't been born yet. And I, I think we need to, to, to rebalance our system because right now, the guy who writes the biggest check gets the biggest say, and that has led to the problem that we're in right now. Uh, I think, you know, in places like the United States, we might, uh, I don't know, take a stroll back in time and reintroduce ourselves to the concepts of uh, the Enlightenment and, and maybe accepting science as part of our lives. Um, and I think on the international community front, uh, we need to have institutions that deal with these issues effectively, which we do not have. Uh, and uh, I mean, that's a big gap in terms of the multilateral front. And I think we need to have agreements that deal with these things effectively. Um, it didn't help that the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Accord. But to be honest with you, it didn't help that the Paris Accord was pretty weak, gruel as it was. 
that it was essentially countries agreeing to set their own standards and abide by them. Uh, we need, if this is a crisis, to set real standards, to hold people to them, to penalize them for not achieving those standards, and to hold those accountable who are doing damage uh, that the earth cannot recover from. It is a crime against humanity to promote coal, plant, coal plants, the sale of coal, and the continued use of fossil fuels. It is not an economic choice. It is consigning people around the world to live in unsafe conditions, to be dislocated, and to actually, in, in many cases, die or suffer. David, you mentioned the redefinition of institutions as an, as an urgent task. The recent NATO summit was really a disaster and, and kind of a joke in many ways. Do you think the alliance itself is in peril? Does it need to be redefined? Or is it just a, a result of the mix of current leaders that is making it look so weak? Well, you're charitable to suggest that there are current leaders. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think that part of it is the weakness of current leadership. But, you know, The international system was cooked up in, in the wake of World War II, so that's 1945, so that's almost uh, uh, seven decades ago, and uh, or it's over, over seven decades ago, and um, a lot of the institutions that were developed as part of that process, uh, or in the years immediately following it, could use a refresh. Um, the, 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 uh, the UN was designed to be weak, and it is weak. Um, alliances like NATO were designed to deal with Cold War reality, which has passed. Uh, they were deal designed to deal with a world in which uh, 50% of all world trade went through one country, the United States, and the U.S. was disproportionately powerful. That's passed. It was designed to deal for a world in which most conflict was state to state. That's not the way it is. Most conflict was conventional. We've passed through the nuclear age. We're now in an age in which cyber conflict can be taking place between all countries all the time and slowly degrading those countries as opposed to destroying them. We don't have treaties for it. We don't have doctrines for it. We don't know how to deal with it. So we need to uh, go back to these institutions and fix the ones that are old and broken. The WTO is fairly new. It's old and broken. And then we need to recognize that there are some institutional gaps that, 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 that we have that, that need to be addressed, whether that's an alliance for security in the Pacific, which doesn't exist, or whether that's um, uh, global institutions to deal with uh, uh, climate change or transmigration or, uh, or, or issues like common network standards. If, you can't, if, you, if we don't have a treaty that establishes standards for network security, we are going to come rapidly to the end uh, of, of a lot of global trade simply because we won't be able to trust components of the systems on which our economies depend. So, you know, to me, the next U.S. president, the next generation of leaders have the job before them sort of present at the creation 2.0. They, they need to reimagine uh, global institutions. You talked about trust. There's people on the streets all over the world. Do you see a common thread in these massive protests and that don't really seem to be ideological, uh, motiv ideologically motivated? Are they isolated clusters or is this another great symptom of the system failing? 
Well, you know, people have been in the streets for a long, long time. Uh, and uh, while it seems like these things are, are unrelated in some ways, you know, if you, if, you, if you take a step back and you say, well, you know, there are people in the streets in Hong Kong, there are people in the streets in Bolivia, there are people in the streets in uh, Iran, there are people in the streets in Russia, uh, there are people in, in the streets in Hong Kong. We, you know, what, what do these things have to do with each other? Uh, you know, it would, it would probably be careless to suggest that they were completely disconnected. Uh, the reality is that uh, many of them have a common theme, which is people feel disenfranchised from their governments, uh, whether it's, you know, autocratic governments in China or Iran or governments they feel have lost touch with them or, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, or, you know, as, as in some of the protests that we've seen in, 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 in Western countries, uh, a sense that, you know, a, you know, financial elite have sort of captured control of these governments. And, 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 you know, I think that's, you know, if, if the people are in the street, the institutions are not working properly. And so we need to ask ourselves why that's happening globally right now. And I, I, I think the answer is too much concentration of power in the hands of too few people. The U.S. is leaving a huge gap in power globally. Do you agree with the consensus that China and to a lesser extent Russia are filling this economic and political space? Or is it too simplistic to think that way? No, I, it's not only not simplistic, I think it's realistic. The reality is, of course, China is growing. China is, um, by some measures, the largest economy in the world. It's going to grow. It's going to be larger and larger and larger. If you're the largest economy in the world, you've got more clout. Uh, it's decided to project its force. It's established uh, its first foreign naval base in, in, in Africa, of all places. It'll do another in Pakistan soon. Uh, it's conducting war games in the Persian Gulf with the Russians and and the Iranians, uh, you know, naval exercises. It's it's done the same thing in the Mediterranean and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, it said it wants a blue water navy. It's going to be a force increasingly in global affairs. Uh, and, it, you know, the leader, Xi Jinping, has, has said as much. He said, if the U.S. is going to step back, we'll step forward. He said that at Davos a couple of years ago, right after Trump was elected. Putin, meanwhile, I think is leading a global movement of sort of ethno-nationalism uh, uh, against democratic institutions, against international institutions, um, which uh, has, has, has had a lot of success, whether you look at the election of Trump or you look at the Brexit vote or you look at the rise of right wing power in uh, France or Italy or Austria or uh, Hungary or Poland. Um, you see that Putinism as a uh, as a as a as an ideological movement to empower uh, oligarchs and and promote the undermining of the institutions that have traditionally empowered the West uh, seems to be gaining uh, uh, influence you wouldn't expect it would have because Russia, of course, is a relatively small economy. Um, and so I think, you know, suggesting that they're stepping into the, to the void, um, is, is right. Let, let me go, let me go back to this thing that you, you've now said a number of times of too much clout in the power of too few. And that is not only too few people and as in human beings, but also 
too few companies. And, you know, and I think in when you opened up, you talked about sort of the whole issue of, you know, we just don't understand how to create a policy around artificial intelligence and data. And, you know, I, I certainly see a newfound concern about privacy. I mean, I, I uh, Mooney and I were talking before you came on about uh, the new Apple iPhone 11 ad, which is all about privacy. It's not about, you know, a better camera or a better, uh, better computing power, but it's all about privacy. And do, do you, what do you see as the future for Google and Facebook and these other massive tech companies and their role in creating this new order? And, and how much is the concern about privacy going to drive that? Well, I think like a lot of things that happen in the markets, the, the arbitrage is between the people who know what's likely to happen and understand it and the people who don't. And that's how, you know, big investing institutions that have a lot of resources and the ability to uh, uh, to use computing to determine uh, trading trends and so forth, they do better than everybody else. And I think what's happened in the tech space is that the people who understood the technology also understood the ignorance of the public at large, and they took advantage of it. Someday we're going to look back at the deal Google offered everybody, which was, hey, we'll give you this great new free email, and all you have to do is give us access to all your data. Uh, as you know, It's the same as the Indians uh, or the, the Dutch buying Manhattan uh, from the Native Americans for you know, $24 worth of beads. It's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous transaction. Uh, but what is happening gradually is that people are coming to the awareness that their data, the data streams that they throw off through their phones and their cars, uh, through their laptops, through their daily exercise, 24 hours a day, through their Fitbits, through their Apple Watches and so forth, um, has a value. And people are trying to cash in on that value. And on and, and the one hand, people are going to want to monetize that. On the other hand, the fact that they all live in a cloud of data which can enable people with powerful tools to uh, analyze their next move uh, and, and, and actually to uh, influence their lives and, and, and perhaps at some point in the future uh, constrain them or punish them for their lives, uh, charge them, tax them. Uh, I think that is also going to uh, produce the, a backlash. We're starting to see it now, but we're only in the very early days because we haven't really seen governments go full big brother on this stuff, although the Chinese are getting closer and closer to it with facial recognition and giving people social points that they get charged and 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 sort of moving us into real black mirror territory. Uh, and I think that's that's going to happen. Uh, uh, increasingly. Um, and as I say, the fact, you know, if, if you were going into foreign policy in the 1950s, you had to understand nukes. You had to speak nuke. You had to know what a throw weight was because that was going to define the world. We're now entering into a world in which artificial intelligence and big data and revolution in biotechnology and other things are going to change the nature of power, the nature of life, the nature of economics, um, the nature of politics. And nobody who's currently in power understands any of it. You know, if you, if you, I mean, if I said to you, let's go and sit and have a discussion with Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi about artificial intelligence, you would laugh at me and you should. Because it would be ridiculous. Yeah, no, that's 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 absolutely right. Let me let me ask you a related question, which is about social media and you know direct interference in elections, fake news, hacking, you know all of that. 
I thought it was interesting what you said about sort of that we're only at the beginning of the backlash. And do you see a solution to either, I don't know, avoid the backlash or to restrict the ability of social media to create such polarization and division? Well, I think one of the solutions is, you know, applying the principles that underlie antitrust laws and not allowing people to companies to control vast swaths of the economy and shape it to their narrow needs. So, you know, retailing is dying in America. Amazon is hugely disproportionately the reason for that. Amazon is going to control a big swath of the U.S. economy and a huge amount of data about the American people, which it, under our current laws, can sell to anybody for any purpose. That can't be. Facebook is the largest, one of the largest media companies in the world, and yet, based on telecommunications laws written in the 1990s, um, doesn't have to act like a media company. That can't be. I think we have to first and foremost recognize um, you know, what these companies for what they are. And I think we need to apply these kind of, uh, uh, new sets of laws, but I think, you know, other things are going to have to happen too. And I'll just give you one example, which relates back to my prior point. And that is a vast amount of your net worth or your value to the economy and the vast amount of the net worth of any company is, is it, is your data asset, right? Um, uh, Pick any company that you know. Uh, 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 you know, uh, take Apple. Even you know they're collecting data from iPhones and and uh, 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 Apple Watches and so forth all day long about all of their users, and that data says where the users are and where they're going, uh, what they like to buy, what they like to listen to, what they like to watch. If you can deduce from that data what their personalities are and so forth. They're going to use that, monetize it. They're going to sell it. Okay, that has a value. That's part of the reason that Apple is traded so high. But no accounting firm knows how to quantify that value. So every corporation in the world has a data asset on its books and and a, and a data liability, and it is. Um, it, I mean, it has a data asset and has a data liability, but it's not on the books because nobody knows how to quantify it. And therefore, every company is undervalued. The global economy is undervalued. And I think that if we start saying this data has this value, then we will start creating incentives for people to regulate it differently and for people to appreciate their rights, quite apart from abstract rights like privacy rights, a little bit more uh, carefully. That said, I, you know, I believe people should and do have a natural right to privacy, and I think that needs to be something that enters in to all constitutions. It's not in ours, but it's in some people's, um, just as I think there are 10, 11, 12 countries in the world right now that guarantee people a right to the Internet. Because, frankly, if you don't have access to the Internet, you can't have a job, you can't have an education, you can't be a full participant in society. We need to rewrite the social contract and we need to rethink political philosophy and economic philosophy in the context of these massive uh, 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 changes that are taking place at every level in society. David, we have about a minute. Is there a trend that you're excited about for 2020? The best thing about 2020 is it won't be 2019. <laughs> and, you know, I... 
I, I very much hope that 2020 is the year that the United States reverses some of the political mistakes that we've made um, and uh, ends up with, a, you know, a, a government that's a, a little bit more uh, enlightened and attuned to the issues we've been talking about. I have to say I'm skeptical because a lot of the problems that we see uh, in the United States in particular are associated not with an individual um, but with an outlook that has prevailed among both political parties for the past 40 years. Uh, but, you know, we live and we hope. And I live and I hope. David Rothkopf, thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. My pleasure. Mooney, that was a great interview, and I don't think it requires a lot of comment, but I did want to just say a thousand thanks to all of our listeners who have. Uh, taking the time and trouble to download this podcast and listen to the variety of issues that we've had on this year and wish everybody the happiest of holidays. And we'll see you in the new year once again. Thank you. Thank you.